to realize that this uh, uh, financial weekend that's going to be taking place in November is going to be a great opportunity. The, the average American lives in debt. In fact, 91% of Americans today live in debt. Uh, what that means is we've not done a good job even within the church because uh, there are a lot of those are people who are in the church we have not done a good job of teaching people how to be faithful stewards with their finances. Instead, what we have done is we have uh, we've just become like everybody else. And I want to encourage you, maybe for you, you've, you've not been good at keeping a budget. Maybe you've never done a budget before. Uh, maybe you have good intentions. In fact, most people, I believe, and I'm not going to preach on tithing today, I believe most people want to tithe. They just don't know how to because they spend so much time fretting over whether or not they're going to have enough money to pay their bills. Well, often if we would just set a budget, that's not really an issue for us. Uh, so we want to be able to provide that for individuals as well. Um, part of this is maybe you're one of those few people who you've done well and you've taken care of your finances. You're living within a budget and you're being very responsible and you're asking the question, so now what do I do? How do I take care of the blessings that God has given me? How do I make the best use of those resources? So he'll talk a little bit about that. One of the last things that he'll, he'll talk about, he actually sent me a list of about 15 to 20 items that he'd be willing to talk about. But these are the three that I look at. And from the, the surveys you guys responded with, these are issues that I think would be beneficial to, to the church. But also estate planning. What do you do when you die? You see, the reality is you don't get to take any of that stuff with you. Uh, as much as you have in this life, it's a blessing to have it, but eventually you're going to die. What happens with your financial resources? How can you invest that in your children, your grandchildren, and the causes and the people that you love? So that's all going to be a part of that week, and I do encourage you to try to set that time aside, especially that Saturday morning, which is when we're going to have some seminars that will be here at the church. We would love to have as many of you a part of that as possible. Well, I had... Uh, uh, Lee read a passage earlier, so I'm not going to read it all to you right now. I will reference a portion of it later on. You can turn in your Bibles already if you want, because the primary part of this message this morning is going to come from John chapter 11. It's a beautiful passage of God's compassion and love for his people. And probably most of us have heard it. It's the story of Lazarus. Um, while you're turning, let me just kind of share something with you. As many of you know, I have been coaching my daughter's 12 and under softball team. Actually, I began coaching with them last spring, although some of the faces have changed because we've moved to fall ball instead. Uh, it has been an incredible blessing. We are having such a great time with all of these young ladies. And what I really love to see is how much the girls are improving, especially in areas like hitting and pitching. Well, this past Thursday... We had a game. So earlier in the afternoon, I decided to work with Alyssa on her pitching. So we set up in the front yard, just like we would have out at the softball field. We loosened up a little bit, and then I squatted down to give her a target so she could pitch to me. But as I did so, I heard something that nobody ever wants to hear. My shorts ripped all the way from top to bottom literally to bottom. Two thoughts, actually three thoughts went through my mind. Um, stupid shorts, uh, that was the first one. Um, actually, the real two thoughts that went through my mind, first of all, I'm really glad it happened when I was at home. 
typically at the games, I'll go out and I'll warm up the catcher. So I'll squat down behind the plate. And there are about 30 to 50 parents that are sitting in the stands right behind home plate. Do you know how embarrassing that would have been? I would have literally had to leave at that moment, go home, and probably just not come back. It would have been very, very embarrassing. The second thought that legitimately went through my mind was cheap pair of shorts. (laughs) It couldn't have been my fault. It couldn't have been the fact that maybe I have put on a pound or two. You know, the reality is that I had worn those shorts on many occasions, but they had never given me a problem. When I put them on that day, I had no idea the problem that would arise. And the same thing happens often in life in much more serious avenues. Things happen. And usually when those things happen, they catch us by surprise. We wake up and have no idea the hardship that awaits us. And the question arises for us. What do we do with the stuff, the things that happen? Well, John 11 reveals to us what we should do with our stuff. It tells the story of a man named Lazarus. He was apparently a friend of Jesus. In fact, maybe he was even Jesus's BFF or best friend forever. We know that in verse 3, Lazarus is referred to as the one whom Jesus loved. It's interesting because that phrase is used on more than one occasion, not always with Lazarus. You remember John was defined as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And there is this idea that Jesus had individuals that he loved very much and they were basically best friends for him. What about you? Do you have a best friend or a best friend forever? For some people, it may be their spouse, or maybe it's a childhood friend. Maybe for you, it's someone that helped you through a very difficult time in your life. Some people are blessed to have more than one of these best friends. I kind of picture Jesus as being one of those who had all kinds of best friends. We know that Jesus had been to Lazarus' house on multiple occasions prior to this. In fact, Lazarus has two sisters that we are likely somewhat familiar with, Mary and Martha. They lived in a town called Bethany, a place that Jesus visited often. It's interesting that the name Bethany, the the very name of the town, would literally be translated as a house of the poor. Certainly, there were many poor and needy and broken people that you would find in Bethany. Seems only natural that Jesus would spend so much time in a place like that. Clearly, Jesus had a heart for the poor and the broken. Just take a side note here for a minute. I fear that the church as a whole has moved away from a heart for the poor and the broken. We see people outside the church and we look at individuals and based on their financial condition or whether or not they have it all together, We look at them and we think, man, we'd love to have you as a part of our church. But the reality is there are many poor and broken people all around the world that simply need to know that God himself has a heart for them. And therefore, we ought to have a heart for them as well. Clearly, Jesus had a heart for the poor and the broken. And he doesn't just invite them to come and see what's happening, but he actually invites them to become 
his best friends, the people that he would love on and care about. One of the things that this reveals is that God is not only available to those who have it all together. He is not just seeking an intimate relationship with those who are well-positioned, well-polished, highly intelligent, or wealthy. He chooses to be in a relationship with you and I in spite of the fact that we carry brokenness. What an honor it is to be included as one of Christ's best friends, the fact that he would love us so much that he would give everything for us. Well, Jesus is out ministering when Lazarus becomes ill. His best friend, uh, Lazarus, becomes ill. Mary and Martha know exactly what to do. They don't have any doctors who are going to be able to fix what's taking place. This is a big deal. They've seen sickness. They've seen death. They know what to do. They've seen Jesus heal people over and over and over again. And I know that Jesus is a very busy man, but surely if we ask him, he will come and he will heal our brother. So they do what any responsible sibling would do. They immediately send for Jesus. It's a couple days ride to where Jesus was ministering, which ironically If Jesus really knows everything, which we know he does, based on even this story, if it's a couple days ride, and then it's a couple days back, really by the time Jesus would have gotten back, Lazarus would have been dead anyways, just to let you know already, because you're going to hear the story, you're going to understand it as we go along here, but basically you're talking about a four-day window, because two days, it doesn't matter, the point is he wouldn't have been back in time. Well, Jesus does come, but he doesn't come right away. Have we read the entire passage? We see that Jesus actually receives the message and then continues to minister for a couple days longer. In fact, it sounds a bit odd. Look at the way it's worded in John 11, 5 through 7. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Makes sense to me. So, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea, which Bethany was in Judea. I'm a little bit confused here. It says here, Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, so he waited two days. It doesn't sound like love to me. Apparently, it didn't sound like love to Mary and Martha either. We know that by the time Jesus gets back to Lazarus, Lazarus has already been dead for three days. Can, can you imagine the heartbreak and the frustration that Mary and Martha must have felt? I mean, they knew that Jesus, if no one else, they knew Jesus had the ability to heal. They had seen it firsthand. And if there was anybody that Jesus would want to heal, surely it would be Lazarus. This is his best friend. Remember, he's the one whom Jesus loved. Well, look at the brokenness and the disappointment that is present when Jesus shows up to town. Beginning in verse 20, we read that when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. 
Then we see Martha's greeting, and it's somewhat accusatory in the way she addresses him. It's factual, but it reveals the brokenness within Martha. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Wow, talk about an old-fashioned guilt trip. It's probably this passage is where uh, there have been those for years who have claimed that uh, Jewish women are really good at putting a guilt trip on people. Well, I'm going to tell you this, is, it's here. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I guess she questioned why Jesus had been silent or absent in the midst of their tragedy. But don't judge Martha too harshly. At least she was willing to come before Christ in the midst of her brokenness. Remember, Mary stayed home. You know, there's an interesting contrast here between, a passage, between this passage and a passage found in Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42. It records another of Jesus' visits to Bethany. And on this particular occasion, in Luke 10, Mary is the one who comes to Jesus. In fact, we're told that Mary basically sits on the ground at Jesus' feet, and she's hanging on every word that Jesus says. She is so into what Jesus is doing that she's not worried about all the other things that are going on around her. In fact, Martha begins to complain a little bit about the fact that here I am doing all this work, and there's Mary just sitting there at the feet of Jesus. On that particular occasion, Jesus tells Martha that Mary has chosen the right thing because here she is. She has the opportunity to be with Jesus, and here you are. You're just choosing to be elsewhere. It's it's interesting. In that occasion, Mary was the one that came to see Jesus, and Martha stayed home. On this occasion, Martha comes to see Jesus, and Mary stays home. What that tells me is that Mary is one who is so focused on her grief or she has become bitter because of Jesus' lack of response to the situation. Either way, she doesn't come out to greet Jesus. You know, in our brokenness, it is easy for us to become bitter with God, especially when he doesn't come running right away. We call out to God and we ask him for his help and we expect him to answer immediately. Maybe we are like Martha, where we come before him almost with a voice of resentment. Or maybe we're like Mary, unwilling to even address God. But the truth that I want you to catch is this. Even when God seems silent, he is faithful. In fact, his heart breaks for us. Do you know that historically there have been so many times where incredible tragedy and brokenness has taken place? Think about some of the more significant events. I think of World War II when so many of the Jews were being slaughtered unnecessarily simply because of one man's pride and selfishness and arrogance. I think of September 11th when thousands of people died on that particular day. There were so many people who called out to the Lord for help, but it would seem as if God was silent, as if he were absent from the brokenness and the sorrow. What I want you to know is even in the midst of his silence, he is faithful. 
Even when it seems like everything is falling apart around us, he is faithful and he is there to provide for us. Look at what happens next in our story, beginning in verse 28. It says, after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. There it is again. It's that guilt trip. But it reveals the hurt and the frustration that Mary felt in that moment because Jesus was absent. Both of them address him with the same thing. If you had been here. Basically, where were you, Jesus? We wouldn't be going through this today if you'd have been here. But I know you had important things to do. Why didn't you come? Jesus was absent and he was silent in the midst of their darkest hour. At least that's the way it it seemed. But remember that I said that in the midst of our pain, God's heart breaks alongside us. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then in the shortest verse of Scripture, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, and here's that guilt trip again, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Boy, that's a very common theme here. Clearly, God's heart broke as he saw the pain of those whom he loved. Know that whatever you face today, that our God is compassionate and he cares for you. You will never have to walk the journey of sorrow alone. I'm not telling you he's always going to do things that you want the way you want it. But what I am telling you is he will always be faithful even when you go through some of those times. Some of us in here have experienced loss. Individuals who would develop things like cancer, individuals who would be in car accidents, individuals who would lose jobs and uh, things would change in their lives. Someone else has been unfaithful to them and their marriage has been broken. All of us have experienced some type of brokenness. But in the midst of that brokenness, although at times it may seem as if God does not care, he is faithful. There's a radio program many years ago that was entitled The Rest of the Story, hosted by Paul Harvey, and most of us probably have heard it at some point. Well, the rest of the story with Lazarus is pretty amazing. Remember John 11:5 5 through 7? I read it earlier to you, and it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. You remember I talked about the fact that it seems so out of place. He loved them, so he waited two more days. It seems as if the logic is missing there. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and he waited two more days to go. 
Why did he do that? John 11 reveals the answer to this question. Lazarus had been dead for three days. Now, think about the math here. He stayed for two more days ministering, and then he had a two-day trip back. So even if he had left right away, he would have been dead for a day by the time Jesus got back. So just to make clear, he wouldn't have made it back in time if they were waiting for Jesus. Now, could Jesus have just snapped his fingers and Lazarus been made whole? Absolutely. There were multiple occasions where Jesus would touch individuals, not by physically laying his hands upon them, but simply saying, go and your sins are healed. It wasn't one of those things where Jesus had to be present, but it says he loved them so much, so he waited two more days. Think about it. By the time Jesus gets there, people have already begun to pay their last respects to the family. The funeral has already been held. He is in the grave. Well, Jesus approaches the tomb and he cries out, Lazarus, come forth. And you know what happens next? The dead man all of a sudden is brought back to life and all that pain and all of that sorrow, it is turned into the greatest high that they ever could have imagined. Though the sorrow may last for the night, they discover that joy comes in the morning. By the way, this would be the, uh, the highlight for Mary and Martha's lives. You think about this for a minute, at least at this point in life. Uh, surely the last three days have been difficult for them. They've seen their brother who they loved very much. They saw him die. They knew Jesus could have come and fixed it, but he didn't. So there's a sense of despair, but all of a sudden they are picked up and they're like on a mountain right now. They're so excited because here, my brother who was dead, he is now alive. There is a reason for them to celebrate. But this would also be the straw that would break the camel's back regarding the Pharisees' hatred of Jesus. We're told if we were to read on in John 11 and even in John chapter 12, we're told that many who saw what Jesus did for Lazarus, that they now believed and they wanted to follow after him. Chapter 12 tells us that many others were coming to faith as they saw the resurrected Lazarus. Imagine you had gone to see Lazarus because you heard that he died. So you came by and this was basically an open casket situation. That's the world in which they lived. You came by and you saw Lazarus. You know that this guy is dead. And now you see him out walking around. Many people began to believe not only because of what Jesus was teaching, but specifically because they saw the living proof in the resurrected Lazarus. Let me ask you this, if God has performed a miracle in you, if God has raised you from spiritual death to spiritual life, if God has taken you from a life that is defeated by sin to the point that you know everybody else knows about your sin, what would happen if the world looked upon you and they saw that God had taken you from death to life? Would anyone even notice the change that had taken place? Now, I know in Lazarus' case, it's easy to notice the change. He was physically dead, and now he is physically alive. But I wonder, 
why it isn't easy to tell that God has done such a miraculous work in us. You see, if God is truly a life-giving, transforming God, then he still ought to be doing that in you and me. Bringing those who are dead back to life. In fact, this event would be so significant in regard to Lazarus. We know that there would be a plot to have Jesus killed. According to John chapter 12, Jesus wasn't the only one that was a part of that plot. The plan was also to have Lazarus killed as well. Now I go back to the question, why did Jesus wait to come to see Lazarus? Why would Jesus have remained silent or absent for another two days before he would choose to go back? The town that he was going was a town that he had been to on many occasions, but it had become a place that was increasingly violent to the point that when Jesus declares that we're going to go back to Judea, It's actually one of his disciples, Thomas, who says, yes, let us all go back so that we can all die together. Clearly, this was not a great place to be, but Jesus isn't really concerned with that. He didn't hold off because he was trying to build up enough courage to be able to go back to Bethany. He wanted to be there. He loved the people there. It had nothing to do with any of that. So why did he wait? Why would Jesus remain silent or absent? In the short term, Mary and Martha would be filled with incredible joy that would drown out all of their sorrow. In the long term, this one act would pave the way for all of eternity to be redeemed. You see, if Jesus doesn't raise Lazarus from the dead, perhaps the Pharisees never feel that push to pursue the crucifixion. They had to see Jesus die. Because Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus so much, he had to find a way to be able to become the sacrifice for humanity. Let me suggest to you that because God loves you so much, he had to die on that cross. Because of the fact that he sees you as that important to him, he had to die on that cross. Know today that regardless of how broken and poor you have been. He desires to be in that loving, gracious relationship with you. And he loves you that much. What is the point of all this? Although God may seem silent at times, he will always be faithful to you no matter what you go through. I don't know what you're facing today. I don't know what you're facing tomorrow. But I know that whatever it is that God will not allow you to Go through this journey on your own. I encourage you to call on his name and to seek him out and to truly understand that he's more than a genie that you call on and ask for help from, but he is someone who wants to be your friend, your best friend forever. He loves you that much. I'm going to ask you if you would to close your eyes and bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, we are so grateful for your love and your grace. We're grateful for the fact that although we were sinners and deserved no grace, no goodness whatsoever, that you reached out to us in our brokenness, in our poverty, in our sin, and you made it possible for us to be redeemed. We come before you now grateful that you loved us so much that you would send your son to die for us. 
I pray that each individual who is here, if there be one that does not know you, that right now, regardless of their past, that they would call out to you and that they would be brought from death to life. Lord, I pray that if there be one here that is still enslaved by sin and they are enslaved by things that do not belong in their lives, I pray that in this moment that they would surrender everything, that they would be made new and they would be transformed and they would become a living testimony to the transforming work that you alone can do. Allow them to become like Lazarus, one who was dead and now alive and the rest of the world begins to believe because they see it firsthand. Lord, I pray that you would give us the victory and make us the world changers you intended us to be. With every head bowed and eye closed this morning, perhaps there's one here today that would say, I am not ready to meet my Savior, but I am living defeated by sin, and I need to be made free. Pastor, would you just pray that God would set me free today? Would you just raise your hand right where you're at, and I want to be able to pray for you. Father, for each one who is here today, I pray that you would simply have your way in us. Help us to truly walk in freedom and life. Lord, as we get ready to participate in the Lord's Supper, a celebration of a sacrifice that you made, Lord, I pray that this would be more than a ritual, but this would be a time for us to reflect on your goodness and your grace. Lord, we're going to take two common ordinary elements, but to us it means so much more. One represents your body, one represents your blood. Thank you for allowing those things to be sacrificed for us. May we live daily in celebration of that sacrifice. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today, and as we do so, I've invited a few individuals to come and help me serve. Uh, this is a ritual that is practiced in many churches around the world. Um, most churches do it at least occasionally. There are some churches that do it every week. Uh, there are some churches that do it very, very infrequently. Uh, we do it about once a month here at the church, and it's just an opportunity for us to, in many ways, to celebrate what Christ has done. We've been talking about the sacrifice. We've been talking about his love for us. The only reason God offered his body as a sacrifice for us is because he really did love us. Imagine uh, one of your children being in great physical need or danger. What would you be willing to do to rescue your child? Would you risk your own life? Would you give of yourself so that they could be delivered? Well, that's in many ways what God the Father did. He allowed Jesus Christ, his son, to be the sacrifice so that we could have life. Uh, Jesus, on that last night that he was with his disciples, they gathered for a meal. And as they gathered for a meal, Jesus took bread. And he said to them, this represents my body that is broken for you. He said, every time you eat this, I want you to do it in remembrance of me. He then took wine, and we're going to use grape juice today. Um, and he took wine and he said, this represents my blood that is shed for you. And every time you drink this, I want you to remember my blood being shed. Now, what I will say, and I've shared with this body before, but uh, I think at times we have minimized this act that's called the Lord's Supper or communion to the point that it is nothing more than a ritual that we do in church on Sunday mornings. Uh, that is not what Jesus intended when he met with his disciples. He didn't tell them, you know, every Sunday when you do this, I want you to remember me. 
He didn't say that, you know, when the church gathers together, then if you eat the bread, if you drink the wine, then you remember me. He said, every time you eat this, every time you drink this, I want you to remember my body that's broken and my blood that is shed. What does that mean? When you go to lunch today, it is an opportunity for you to remember the body that was broken for you and the blood that was shed. Every time you come together, if you eat, if you drink, it is an opportunity for you to remember Jesus loved you that much that he would lay down his own life for you. It actually probably ought to be a topic of conversation. Can you believe the sacrifice someone gave for me? What has that sacrifice meant to you? That's stuff you can share with others I know we're here for a meal, but do you realize what this meal represents? And there was a time that I was a sinner destined for hell, and these are the things that enslaved me, but God set me free, and this is an opportunity for me to celebrate that with you. Praise the Lord for the victory and the freedom that I have today because the body that was broken and the blood that was shed on my behalf. And this is not just for Sunday morning. This is every time we come together. We're going to do it here. I want to challenge you, take this with you too. We're going to have individuals come forward and they're going to help to distribute the elements of communion. What I'm going to ask you to do is, first of all, if, if you are toward the back of the line, so you're one of the last ones to come forward to receive the elements, until you receive those elements, take time just to pray and ask God to make his grace real to you to remind you of the work that he did. What has his salvation, his gift, his sacrifice meant to you? If you're toward the front, grab the elements, take it back to your pew, spend time praying. Maybe thank God for his grace, for what he has done for you. Don't let this just be a ritual. Let this be a time to truly remember. I'm going to pray one more time. Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity to meet, the opportunity to remember. And I pray that as we partake in these elements, that truly this will be a time for us to reflect on how good you have been to us. Thank you that you would reach into our broken lives and you would offer us redemption and forgiveness. May you be honored now as we remember what your sacrifice means to us. Take these ordinary elements, let them truly impact our hearts and minds. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I will tell you that this is just ordinary bread. This is just ordinary wine, but it's insignificant what these are. What they represent is far more significant. The fact that God himself would come down in the form of a man and he would sacrifice himself for us is really overwhelming to think about. Um, the fact that God the Father would send His Son, His very own Son, to die for us. And we could never deserve that kind of sacrifice. I think I love my kids too much to let them die for you. Nothing against anyone in here. But God said, I love you enough that I would send my Son to die for you. What an incredible honor that is What an incredible love he has for us. As Jesus met with his disciples, he took the bread and he said, this represents my body that is broken for you. Every time you eat this, do it in remembrance of me.
He then took the wine and he said, this represents my blood that is shed for you. And without the shedding of blood, and this goes all the way back to the Old Testament, back to the days of Genesis. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. He said, every time you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. Father, again, we come before you, grateful for the sacrifice you've given, for the body that was broken, for the blood that was shed. I pray that every day we would live in celebration of what you have done for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I do thank you for being a part of our worship service this morning. Thank you for um, coming here today. I will say we have church again next Sunday. We'd love to have you. We won't do communion next Sunday, but we would love to have you again next week. It is a blessing. Uh, I will encourage you, if you can, make plans to be a part of all that stuff that Jerry was advertising earlier. Thank you, and go in peace. <laughs>